1: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today I'm going to be talking with Winifred Bird about her book, Eating Wild Japan, tracking the culture of foraged foods with a guide to plants and recipes. Uh, This is more than a look at the the culture and the meanings of foraging in Japan, though it's certainly that, And it does uh, include an eclectic collection of recipes, a guide for foragers, Um, But at its heart, this is uh, a record of the author's encounters with uh, some quirky people, uh, including a caldera dweller, a bear hunter, and a a seaweed scientist in some surprising places from snowy northern mountains to quiet Kyoto streets um, around food. Uh, And it's animated by uh, birds' obvious effusive love of food, of travel, of people, of the environment. Uh, The author begins by observing that for many people in contemporary Japan, uh, wild forage is as much about the pleasure of picking and the incidental beauty as it is about anything as practical as nutritional content. But also uh, points out that this attitude is very much the product of particular historical and economic circumstances. Her sensitivity to this issue is foregrounded in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, which are on horse chestnuts and bracken, respectively. Bird's background as an environmental journalist is noticeable uh, in particular, I think, in her final chapter on wild seaweeds uh, and the costs and benefits of aquaculture. Though as the full title, Eating Wild Japan, indicates, uh, this is a book that's based on fieldwork firmly rooted in Japan. Uh, It will appeal to foodies and travel-starved East Asia neophytes, uh, as well as veterans and scholars of Japan. Alright, so thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, and I wanted to ask you right away, uh, what, first of all, uh, is it okay to call you Winnie? I know, I should say for the audience that we, we know each other, uh, IRL.
0: Um, yeah, please call me Winnie. Nobody calls me Winifred except one or two family members. So, right,
1: yeah. I just wanted to make sure, uh, especially because Winifred is uh, necessary to to Google the book information, so we'll we'll get that out there. But, um, I wanted to ask you right away, you know how you became interested in uh, this project?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and let's see. well i I lived in Japan for almost ten years um most of it in rural japan um so partly in mie prefecture and then later in nagano prefecture um and i've always loved gardening um i had a small farm there in japan i spent a lot of time um with other farmers and people in the neighborhood who um you know grew their own food, and also harvested, picked food, wild foods. So I started to become familiar with Japan's wonderful, um, extensive culture and cuisine centered around um, edible wild plants while I was living there. Um, And then uh, in 2014, I moved back to the United States. and I was kind of digesting my experience in Japan. Um, I had worked...
1: No no pun intended, I guess, yes.
0: <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> can't help myself. Um, so I had worked there as an environmental journalist. Um, I had done a fair amount of writing about agriculture and rural communities. Um, so I had a lot of... <sighs> questions running through my head about, um, how food culture kind of shapes people's relationships to nature. And, um, when I got back, uh, I guess I was trying to find a way to, um, express that experience, share some of that experience. And one night I was laying in bed and I just thought to myself, oh, I have to write this book about, you know, the culture of foraging in Japan and what it means to Japanese people to pick, um, you know, wild plants and eat them and what that has meant throughout history. I try to figure that out somehow. I got out of bed. I basically outlined the whole book right then and there. Um, you know, not down to, to all the details, but it kind of just felt like, um, the book I had to write at that moment, um, to kind of look back on my experience in rural Japan.
1: Yeah. And I want to, uh, I guess I should uh, say for for you and for for our audience that uh, I I deeply resent this because this is a book project that I've thought about so many times over the years. I had a sort of similar experience. um, And I just, I guess, I guess you're just better at this than I am because I never got around to jumping out of bed in the middle of the night and actually outlining the book. Uh, (laughs) But I'm I'm super excited that somebody finally did this because I, you know, I had kind of um, a similar feeling that this is, uh, you know, having lived in, in, you know, sort of rural area of Japan uh, for for quite some time um, I used to go you know picking you know, sort of wild you know, picking wild stuff foraging um, quite a lot uh, especially uh, right after my son was born it was a great way to just sort of get outside and you know take the baby and go walking around in the woods and um, mm-hmm. and yeah you realize that there's there's so much more to it right um, and it's, it really is uh, you know something um, that's deep and meaningful and pleasureful. And and this is something that you talk about uh, quite a bit in your introduction. Um, You talk about the the meanings and the uses of wild foods. Um, And I I really related to your observation in the introduction that for a lot of people, wild forage is, uh, and I just wanna quote you here, um, it's as much about quote, the pleasure of picking and the incidental beauty as it is about anything as practical as nutritional content. Um, And you also point out, and I thought this was, you know, given what you said about um, your sort of interest as an environmental journalist and thinking about the relationship uh, between food culture and the environment, um, that there's this paradoxical judgment, which has existed since ancient times, about wild foods. Um, And this is bound up in the development of agriculture and its cultural complex. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, yeah, as you say, I mean, foraging it's just such a wonderful way to get out um in nature to connect with nature to connect with the place that you live in the physical place and the other species that live in that place um and also a way to kind of get in tune with seasonality on a very um fine-grained level um because you know some of these plants they are only really in season in terms of being edible and delicious for you know a few we- a few days or a week. You have to catch that moment in time, and um, doing that is just is very satisfying. It's wonderful to be out in nature, um, even if it's just a little patch of weeds by your garden or a meadow on the edge of your your town. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a huge national park or anything like that. Um, And I think it also, um, for me at least, makes you appreciate the generosity of the land and think about our relationship to it in different ways maybe than gardening does. Um, And what was interesting for me in, in doing the research for this book was to start to realize that people have had those same feelings and connections and experiences for at least a 1,000 years, for probably much longer. Um, And it's hard to know what ordinary people, you know, how ordinary people related to plants a long time ago. You know, we don't necessarily have records of what their thoughts were. And in in a lot of cases, maybe um, eating wild plants was necessary, you know, just to feed themselves. But what we do have are these... Um, poems and writings in Japan from sometimes you know going back a thousand years that give you a little bit of window into um, how people viewed these plants. Um, so and and of course, most of these were written by people in the upper classes um, by aristocrats, people living in cities, which interestingly is kind of similar to our situation, so they were. For them, um, sansai, as they're called in Japanese, wild mountain vegetables, were something special, something of a luxury, a rarity that they would go out and um, and pick maybe on a special excursion um, to give them a break from, you know, to add some excitement to their, their diet. Um, and I use some of these poems in, to, to open each chapter in my book. And I, if you want, I can read one of them that i really like is that is that okay oh
1: yeah that'd be great yeah i was i was hoping to ask you to do that anyways that's fantastic
0: sure so this is um a poem from the ninth century by emperor coco um and it's in the hekinen issue and it's i'll just read the english um so for you beloved i walk the fields in springtime picking wild greens as snowflakes fall and fall on the sleeves of my kimono. Um, So I I just love this poem because it's, well, first of all, it's a beautiful image, but second of all, it it kind of shows you how um, these plants connected people to each other. Um, You can imagine going out and maybe picking, you know, warabi, bracken, fiddleheads, or... um, you know, alpine leaves, iniku for somebody that you love because it's a very special food and, and bringing it back to them and giving it to them. Um, so it's starting to, it's kind of expressing some of the um, meanings in these foods that go beyond sustenance, that go into the emotions that are attached to them, I guess I would say.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually a, a really excellent segue into your first chapter, if you don't mind, um, because the first chapter, which is entitled uh, Common Weeds and Woodland Wonders, the First Greens of Spring, um, you know, I noticed right away that the book is, of course, it's about food, it's about wild forage, but as you indicated with that poem, it's very much about people. Um, and in each of the chapters, uh, you, you're you paying quite close attention to the people, uh, the encounters uh, that you had, um, the people you learned from, that you ate with uh, in sort of, you know, putting the book together and something that I appreciated about it. Um, can we dive into this chapter here?
0: Yeah, sure. Of course.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so maybe... in chapter... Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, uh, maybe I can come back later to your question of the kind of flip side of of sansai which is um, their use as a famine food or a, as a kind of their associations with poverty and the inability to grow rice or to grow other agricultural crops.
1: Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, so, so here in chapter one, um, we're, we first meet uh, Hanaoka Reiko. Uh, so can you tell us about her, uh, a little bit about where she lives um, and why wild forage is important to her? Um, And the time that you spent with her, the food that you ate with her, Um, because this is one of the nice things about this is that it's in some ways kind of a travel log. And you've uh, again to keep the food uh, puns going, you've sort of spiced it up with these uh, poems that are the epigraphs to the chapters. There's also illustrations, Um, but there's also uh, in a couple places you've included some recipes as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. And um, yes, you've uncovered the secret of this book, which is that I am actually more interested in people than in plants. Um, I love plants. I love um, going out in nature. But I, as a writer, I tend to gravitate towards uh, people and, and, you know, maybe how they relate with nature. So yes, that was definitely my, my focus in the book. Um, And, you know, throughout my travels, um, I met a lot of people who I would characterize as plant people. Um, we're just kind of oriented towards the plant world, uh, more than most of us are maybe in some cases to like a, a kind of extreme degree of obsession. Uh, it almost feels like, um, which in our current culture, just, which is so, um, urban and industrial is, is somewhat unusual. You know, most of us, Uh, tend to ignore plants or not necessarily you know really consider our relationships to them uh, on a deeper level so you know reiko-san was one of those people definitely um she lives in kumamoto prefecture which is on the island of kyushu um and she actually lives up in uh aso caldera so aso caldera is a ancient volcano that erupted and collapsed. (laughs) And um, and then in the collapsed, you know, the the caldera part of it up at top, there's um, a grouping of of more recent volcanoes that are still active. Some of them are still active. And people have lived in this caldera for at least a thousand years and probably longer than that and farmed there. Uh, There's a very unique um, kind of semi-natural meadow uh, um, environment there where people have grazed cattle for a re- really long time. So anyhow, she lives there. She um, She's a really interesting woman. She grew up, or she, previous to moving there, she had lived in the city, and I think she worked at a bank or something like that, and she wanted to live in the countryside. So 20 years ago, she moved there with her husband, and they grow... Um, organic rice, very small scale, kind of move around from house to house. They're not really settled, rooted anywhere particular. Um, and they just love plants and they love um, geology and they know they're incredibly knowledgeable about it. They're geo guides and, and um, kind of nature guides in the area. Um, and Ray Gosan in particular um, has a fascination with sansai and Edible wild plants. And she's basically the kind of person where, you know, if she's heard, you can eat it. She wants to eat. She wants to try eating it, um, which is a little bit like me. i I wouldn't say I'm that ex- that um, extreme, but I did connect with her in that, yes, I tend to be curious about, you know, you read, well, oh, you can eat the leaf of this plant. Well, then let's do it. Um, so in this chapter, I was kind of interested in exploring what motivates people today in the modern world to or in modern japan to eat um to seek out these plants and eat them when they're not um, necessary in any way in terms of you know getting calories or feeding oneself so in her case i think it was just really curiosity um and she was also very interested in the medicinal value of from edible wild plants but anyhow um a mutual friend introduced me to her and um took me to her house for lunch and she just cooked us this incredible feast um and the main dish of which was tempura made essentially with weeds that we collected from around her rice patties so probably a dozen or so different weeds um Dandelion, ground ivy, watercress, plantain, um, Japanese parsley, mugwort, field horsetail, um, things like that, that are, are familiar to people in many parts of the world uh, as edible weeds. Um, it may be not the most, not the more uh, glamorous <laughs> edible wild plants that mm. you eat sometimes in Japan, but um, it's still very delicious. And um so basically, collected this pile of leaves for us, at different plants, and um, set up a, a, a um, gas burner outside her barn on a little rickety table, and filled it up with oil, and you know, whipped up her tempera batter right there, and started <laughs> frying things um, right across the, the gravel path from her uh, gardens and farm, and we kind of sat out there and ate it as, um, as she cooked. And it was just one of those wonderful meals, um, where the, the setting and the experiences is so much, um, contribute so much to the, the flavor of what you're eating. Um, you know.
1: Yeah. I think this is, this is, I think where, uh, you have this memorable quote about, uh, you, you know, you discover that, uh, essentially, you know, tempura is this magical, technique that makes anything delicious
0: (laughs) yes exactly you can pretty much deep fry anything throw a little uh salt on it and you know it's gonna taste good the the leaf itself might taste like um a piece of paper (laughs) as some of them do but um the overall um you know experience and taste is is pretty much fail-proof um so one of my favorites was actually the, the dandelion buds, which I thought tasted a bit like um, uh, artichoke hearts. So I would recommend that um, to anyone.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So I, I I had never tried that. We used to make um, dandelion syrup. Oh. And I've eaten dandelion greens. Dandelion syrup actually comes out with almost a like a combination of fruity and vanilla. Um, huh. But yeah, I'll have to try that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> certainly dandelion is something you can find anywhere, I would say almost anywhere in the world. and um, yeah, probably more than you would like to find it sometimes in your lawn or whatever. So um, yeah, I try to I try to make good use of it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, So you continue this wild tempera journey uh, in Nagano Prefecture, in this very unusual area, which I I have to admit I was entirely ignorant of. Um, Can you tell us first about the forest, this area, and also the time that you spent there uh, and the person, Koriki Kazuhiro?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, I was fortunate to be able to go to a place called the Afan Woodland Trust, which is outside of Kurohime in Northern Nagano Prefecture. And um, as you might be able to guess from the name, it was actually founded by a Welsh man or a man born in Wales, um, Clive William Nichols, C.W. Nichols, who's quite a celebrity in Japan. He's a very, uh, he was a, he passed away in 2020, unfortunately, but he was a prolific writer. Um, You know, he, I think he was on, uh, whiskey advertisements. He has a kind of very um, memorable <laughs> personality, kind of swashbuckling personality, and has had all kinds of adventures. And But he's also a conservationist. And starting in the 1980s, um, he started buying up degraded forest land in outside of Kurohime um, and restoring it, um, essentially, to something resembling traditional satoyama. Um, And I guess I would define satoyama as um, rural landscapes that have been shaped by human use, um, specifically traditional agricultural practices so that they are um, kind of semi-natural, is what was the term that people use in Japan quite a lot. Um, And in this case, it was a woodland, Uh, Satayama so um, basically people would harvest um, coppice the trees and harvest fallen um, branches for making charcoal and for growing mushrooms Um, they would use the young um, younger branches and leaves um, as kind of a, a green manure in farm fields so the woods were constantly being used. And as a result of that, they don't um, mature in their natural succession pattern. Instead they stay as um, deciduous, um, every, uh, sorry, deciduous um, um, woodlands, basically where you know the, the trees are bare in the winter so that in early spring, the forest floor is getting a lot of sunlight And you have all these, um, you know, flowers and herbaceous plants, uh, that grow in early spring, including all kinds of samsai. Um, so that is the, the type of, um, environment that CW Nickel and his forest managers, um, created on his, on his property. And I was there in spring and it was just a beautiful place, um, you know, the, the forest floor was just covered with um butterburr, which is fuki, and ostrich ferns, um, kogomi, um Alpine leeks, Gyojian and Nigo lilies, um, which is calcanzo. Um and so anyway, we were kind of walking through the forest and he was telling me about it and, and we were picking these plants to make <laughs> tempura. Uh once again tempura which excuse me these days is a is a kind of iconic thing to make out of spring greens in Japan, I would say. Um, not so much historically because tempera isn't in the big picture of things, isn't that old of a food um, because it requires a lot of oil, which people didn't have a long time ago um, in Japan. But today um, it, it's kind of a typical thing to make as a special celebratory food using sansai. Um, So anyhow, um, Kouriki was also very interested, like um, Reiko was, in the kind of medicinal and health-giving qualities of edible wild plants. Um, And their purifying role in spring, you know, people have been, traditionally would have been, you know, kind of cooped up in their houses, eating preserved foods, not a lot of or nothing fresh if you lived in a snowy region like Nagano, um, eating only, you know, your staple foods, your grains and and miso and pickles. Um, so in spring, to come out and to eat some of these, um, these the first sansai of spring was a, a very, like, uh, invigorating and nourishing thing to do. And, um, people especially sought out some of the more bitter plants, which was interesting to me. Um, as an American, I sometimes had a hard time eating, um, some of these very bitter flavors, but, um, (laughs) I don't know if you, you observed that when you were in Japan, but Japanese, a lot of Japanese people, um, seek out those flavors.
1: Yeah, that's, it's definitely a noticeable trend. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And and one of the things that, that Kodiki taught me when when we were out in the woods together or introduced me to was um this saying that I just love. It's Shindo Fuji, um, which I had translated as Body and Earth One and the Same. Um, it's like a traditional or a, a Buddhist saying that was taken up by proponents of the macrobiotic diet and um kind of just expresses um, the importance of eating these local in-season plants and getting your body in tune with the place that you're living um, by doing that. And, um, yeah, I just – I'm grateful to him for, for introducing me to that. It's, it's something I think about a lot um, because our current food system is, is so um, – alienated from
1: that way of that way of eating yeah um you mentioned uh in your sort of introduction to the forest uh butterburr uh, which come up uh, at, here at the end of your chapter as well in a third uh, personal encounter, um, and this is with a, a Korean woman uh, Kim Yong Hee who is living in Japan. Um, you share her recipe for uh, what you what you call butterbur packets uh, and the ways the, the very creative ways that she's integrated uh, butterbur into her own cooking. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so Kim Myung Hee is. Um, she's an artist and she's the founder of the peace mask product, uh project in japan um where she makes these um masks with groups of people these white masks um with different groups of people um to as kind of like a symbol of peace and cooperation and um she lives up in the mountains of Takahama um in a, a little house in a kind of picturesque village. And she has, um, I guess I would say that if her reason for um, eating and loving sansai and edible wild plants is that she's very interested in living the simple life, kind of reconnecting with rural culture and sustainability. Um, she has studied permaculture and um, she kind of talks to the other village women about how they traditionally used plants and um, you know, tries to incorporate that into her her um, life and her way of cooking, um, which is something that I connected with because I think I I have a, a similar kind of idealization of the you know the simple life or the good life in some ways. Um, but because she grew up in Korea, where um, edible wild plants, I think, are also a very important part of the cuisine and the culture, she puts a, a different twist on. Uh, these foods than a lot of, or than most Japanese cooks. So in the case of fuki butterbur, most Japanese people eat the flower buds, which emerge from the ground first, very early in spring. Um, Sometimes they actually melt. You may have seen this, Nathan, where they'll melt the snow Mm -hmm. as they come out of the ground, which is kind of fascinating. And so they're one of the first sunsai that you can pick and they're very bitter and, and people will chop them up and mix them with miso to make fuki miso um, and, or, you know, sometimes put them in miso soup. And then later in the season, um, the leaves, the leaves come out and the leaf stalks are a very common um, food as well. So people will pick the, the leaves and the leaf stalks and actually just dis- usually discard the leaves unless they're very young. Um, and then kind of process the leaf stalks, peel them and boil them and, um, and then oftentimes simmer them in kind of a, a very strongly flavored um, soy sauce, sweetened soy sauce. Um,
1: yeah. I admit I was much more, I was, was much fonder of the, um, the buds than the leaf stalks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They have a kind of a medicinal taste. I think
1: the
0: is what it's called when they're prepared that way. And, and, um, it's it's kind of a bit uh, this uh, I would say representative of a lot of um, country style Japanese cooking where the, the flavors are pretty strong, <laughs> the seasoning is pretty heavy um, mm-hmm. contrary to maybe uh, American images of, of Japanese food um, but anyhow um, Myonki's way of preparing Fuki was to take the leaves, the young leaves, and blanch them, and then use them to wrap um, rice that, or cooked rice that she had mixed with sesame seeds and salt and a little bit of sesame oil, um, and then make these little uh, bundles out of them, which were just delicious and and very light and refreshing and kind of like the antithesis of the heavy, <laughs> the heavy, sweet, salty um, thing. That I think um, she she never really grew to like, despite living in Japan for you know several decades. So um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to make those with her, and she shared the recipe um, in the cookbook. I mean, in the book as well.
1: Yeah, uh, and it it looks good. I'm actually uh, I'm I'm uh, hoping to get a chance to try it out myself uh, sometime. Um, I want to move us on to, uh, some of the other chapters. In chapter two, uh, which is titled uh, The Tree of Life, The Rise and Fall of the Japanese Horse Chestnut. Um, you open this with this very provocative quote in addition to you know the, the poetic uh, epigraph, but um, you write, it seems a sad tendency of the American mindset to blithely overlook the role of certain ordinary objects in shaping our collective path. Uh, we fill our history books with benevolent kings, heroic generals, forgetting that the plow and the mosquito explain much more. So it was for me and horse chestnuts. Um, And there's this, you know, moment, I guess, of discovery for you, right? And Mm -hmm. as you put it, um, horse chestnuts have been one of the hidden ur foods of Japanese history. Um, And and I guess, you know, this probably strikes a lot of people as as somewhat surprising, given that, um, you know, Japan is much better known for rice and I think grains more generally, but also, you know, fish and so on and so forth. Um, and also that the the process of rendering horse chestnuts is is very time and labor intensive. Um, so it's it, I think it is surprising that they're such an important part of a lot of traditional food systems. Um, and so can you tell us about your encounter with the Japanese horse chestnut?
0: Yeah, this was really surprising to me um, because when I was living in Japan, they didn't even register on um, you know on my radar whatsoever I didn't even realize it was a food that people ate even though i did live in rural japan and ate quite a few wild foods um and i as i was starting the research for this book i was thinking okay you know i've heard that acorns were um historically important in japan you know chestnuts there's um some famous archaeological sites where where a lot of chestnuts have been found and um so I wanted to learn more about that and and find out about that. And I, I asked um, a, a professor who I know uh, who studies trees and <laughs> knows a lot of people. And I said, can you introduce me to someone who studies chestnuts? And he said, no, but I can introduce you to someone who studies horse chestnuts. And I said, okay, horse chestnuts? Like, what's Can you even eat those? Um, because, you know despite the name horse chestnuts and chestnuts are not even remotely related to each other. Um, they enti- they belong to entire different families and, um, as plants and horse chestnuts, ch- chestnuts, you can just eat straight off the tree. I mean, they're delicious. Horse chestnuts are very high in tannins and also in saponins. Um, And it it actually makes them poisonous and inedible if you were just to take a a, um, horse chestnut off the tree and eat it. First of all, you would spit it out instantly because it's so disgusting. Um, And second of all, if you did manage to eat enough of it, you could actually die from eating it, which is very rare because nobody ever eats that much of it. But um, anyhow, uh, as I learned, they have historically been an incredibly important food in Japan. Um, So in the Jomon era, when most of the people living on the, or all of the people living on the Japanese archipelago um, were hunters and gatherers, although they did, you know, in some cases grow, uh, cultivate some foods as well, I think. Um, um, During that era, horse chestnuts were very important. Because they are dense in calories and they're large. I think they're the largest nuts that edible nuts, well, edible by some definitions, that grow, on, that grow in Japan. So um, people learned how to process them to get rid of the tannins and saponins, which is done by an extensive process of leaching and not just leaching with water, but first you leach them with water for, um, you know, sometimes several weeks. Uh, in a, in a running, uh, in like a stream or a source of running water. Um, and then they have to be leached in ash in, in water mixed with ash. Um, so anyway, people learned how to do this a very long time ago. And I, I was, as I learned about this, I was kind of wondering like, why, why would you go through the trouble of doing that? If you live in a place where there are also acorns, um, that require less processing. And there are also chestnuts, you know, and other things to eat. And what I was told um, was that, you know, these nut bearing trees don't bear as, you know, don't bear the same amount every year. So basically like there's just what's called massed years, good nuts, uh, good years for nuts and bad years for nuts. So for example, One year, the acorn trees might be very productive, and the chestnut trees might have nothing. And another year, both might have nothing, and the horse chestnuts might be incredibly productive. So um, in order to survive, if you're depending on wild foods, you need to eat a diversity of foods. You can't depend on um, just one thing or the other, even if it's something like horse chestnuts where... Uh, it takes a lot of work to to prepare it. You know, there's a payoff in terms of the security, food security that's found in diversity um, when you are depending on wild foods. So that was kind of the situation in the Jomuan era. And then in the Yayoi period, people started um, to take up agriculture and to grow rice and to grow other crops in a much more... Um, commonly. Um, But as you know, much of Japan is not well suited to agriculture, especially, and that was especially the case before um, modern crop varieties were developed, before crop breeding um, advanced, and and we were able to develop cold hardy um, varieties of, of grains and things like that. Um, because, you know, you have Northern regions that are very cold and also, you know, about two thirds of Japan is covered in mountains and hills and forest. So if you live in one of those places and all of a sudden, you know, your culture is emphasizing, um, rice, you're kind of out of luck because (laughs) you're going to have a very hard time growing enough rice to, um, survive. So in places like this, especially in mountain villages, people continued to rely on horse chestnuts and other wild foods, but, but notably horse chestnuts until really quite recently, I mean into the into the 20th century, um, people were routinely harvesting and, and storing and processing um, the nuts uh, and it was only you know as uh, food systems became more modernized became um, you know, more nationalized or even international. And people weren't so entirely reliant on their local environment to feed them that people stopped um, eating them or stopped needing to eat them.
1: Yeah. And you you talk about one of these communities uh, in this chapter, uh, Kutsuki. So can you tell us about Kutsuki? Where is it? um, And why did you end up there? Also, how did you end up hanging out with a bunch of geographers there? And what did you learn from that experience?
0: Sure. So Kutsuki is in Shiga Prefecture, which um, surrounds Lake Biwa, a very large freshwater lake. Um, And Kutsuki is a mountain village that's part of the city of Takashima now, but um, it's on the western side of Lake Biwa in the mountains, so kind of northeast of Kyoto. And it's, um, it's it has very, it, um, let's see, how should I put this? <laughs> Deep mountains, so places that in the past were very inaccessible and, and even today are kind of difficult places to live and they're losing a lot of population. Um, and kind of fading as communities, and um, yeah. So I had the good fortune to <laughs> meet this group of geographers through various introductions, who um, study the the culture of of eating tochi nuts, uh, Japanese horse chestnuts, in Kutsuki, and they took me up there and um, and, and introduced me to some some local people who still prepare the nuts um, and I was able to to observe how that's done and also to meet people in uh, a citizen's organization that is working to protect these tochi trees and to revive the use of the nuts. Because what happened was that once people stopped needing them, needing these trees in order to survive. they stopped protecting them. You know, up until that point, there had been all kinds of proscriptions on cutting the trees. Um, you know, you would be severely punished if you cut down a tochi tree because they were so important for survival. Um, but once that changed, those restrictions loosened, and people started these um, timber companies. Timber dealers started coming in and approaching the elderly people in the villages about buying their tochi trees um, because they're, they're um, greatly valued as for, for wood. Essentially people will slice them into slabs and make these kind of quote unquote um, natural looking tabletops out of them and they'll make flooring out of them. Um, So these timber companies were coming in and, um, you know, paying, the elderly villagers really low prices to buy the rights to their trees Um, going out to the forest they would um, actually take them out using helicopters they would cut the tree down just take the section of trunk they wanted kind of discard everything else and lift it out in a helicopter Um, and word got around about this and some people were outraged because they realized um, how important the trees were not only as part of the local food culture but Um, in an environmental sense as well, because they're these riparian trees, they grow along riverbanks and they hold the soil in place. And they're incredibly important for pollinators and other animals live in their, the holes in their trunks. And they're just a, a, a very, um, important species in the forest. And people realized that and kind of banded together and started, um, you know, getting in touch with people in the prefectural government. And um, with Governor Kata, who fortunately was was herself quite an environmental activist and and took up their cause and managed to protect these trees um, for posterity. So it was um, quite an interesting place uh, for, for many different reasons.
1: Yeah, and your chapter three uh, takes us to another uh, interesting mountain village, and actually one that um, I'm somewhat more familiar with from living in in that general area, uh, which is Nishiwaga in southwest Iwate. Uh, and you take us to another one of these, um, you sort of, over, I guess, I guess, somewhat overlooked, um, even though it is ubiquitous, uh, uh, kind of plants. Um, and and so I want to do a couple things here. Um, Because this chapter focuses on uh, bracken, on warabi, Uh, and I want to, because we've talked about tochi and we're going to talk about warabi here, uh, I want to circle back around to that initial question, which I'm sorry I cut you off uh, about, which is sort of the meaning of famine foods. Um, But I also want to first, before we do that, talk specifically about the... um, Bracken, which you somewhat memorably describe as, quote, the cockroach of the plant world, <laughs> ubiquitous, widely reviled, uh, fiddlehead devotees aside, and at the species level, nearly indestructible, which again, is sort of an interesting contrast to, to Tulchi. Um, and at the same time, uh, I think, you know, in the same way that, uh, Uh, it was quite clear that you have an admiration and a love for for horse chestnuts after learning about them. Um, Cockroach of the plant world, I don't think was meant here uh, in any sort of uh, derogatory or defamatory way. Um, And I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what you learned about bracken um, and how it became so important to Nishiwaga uh, and its, you know, history and its current economy. Yeah.
0: Well, first of all, if you look up bracken or bracken fern in most Western plant guides or on the Internet, you'll probably see that they recommend that you don't eat it, that you um, under no circumstances eat bracken. Well, if you live in Japan, you know that people eat bracken um, <laughs> every spring. It's, it's one of the most common samsai. Um, yeah, and,
1: and a lot of it, too.
0: In some places, quite a lot, such as in in Nishiwagamachi. I mean, in the past, when you think about the quantities that people were eating year-round because they would preserve it in salt um, and just eat it instead of vegetables, you know, there's a pretty serious consumption levels. Um, But the reason people are recommended not to eat it in the United States is that it has certain substances in it that in... You know, lab experiments have been shown to cause cancer in lab animals. Um, other experiments have shown that if you process it in the way that the Japanese do, um, with you know alkalis and cooking, well, alkalis such as baking soda or ash, um, which is what everybody does, um, those that neutralizes some of those those substances. Nevertheless, you know, it's possible that there is a connection between elevated cancer rates and high consumption of warabi in some areas. So I would not go out and, you know, start making this a staple of your diet. Um, on the other hand, I wouldn't be afraid to eat, you know, eat it a couple times in the spring.
1: It, it would also be somewhat difficult to make warabi a real staple of the diet. I mean, it's, it's not that kind of food, is it?
0: Well, no, I mean, it's, it's more like, um, asparagus is kind of a, uh, what I would compare it to in, mm-hmm. in a, if it were a cultivated food, it's, um, they're fiddleheads and, and the stalks, you can eat the stalks as well. So it's, it's a vegetable you add to, maybe you put it on top of your soba noodles in broth, um, or you can, you, you know, you can fry it, you can pickle it, all kinds of things. But anyhow, um, yeah, so The interesting thing about warabi to me is that it's the perfect symbol of how a single plant, a single wild plant, can symbolize both luxury and poverty. Um, And that was kind of why I went to Nishiwagamachi to um, kind of explore that dual role a little bit more deeply. Um, So, yeah, as you mentioned, Nishiwaga is... um, a municipality in the mountains of Iwate Prefecture in northern Japan, northern Honshu. And I say municipality, um, most listeners of this program will probably realize this already, but it's not a city. It's more like a county with scattered little hamlets in the mountains. So don't start imagining a city by any means. This is a very rural place. Um, And it's the type of place where Sansai have traditionally been extremely important and continue to be important because of the climate. Um, They receive a lot of snow. The winters are very long. Um, There's not a lot of land to cultivate. So um, people relied on on sansai much more heavily in these these Northern areas and in the mountains. Um, And Warabi in particular grow really well. In this area, uh, there used to be a lot of beach forests and they and um, also if while they, while, while they will grow anywhere, they also like more open areas. So, for example, if you've burned an area um, or if you've um, harvested it for charcoal or harvested the wood for charcoal or if you've maintained it as a meadow for um, thatch for thatching roofs. These are the kind of um, environments that warabi really loves. So there was a lot of that around villages in the past, more so than now when people use these areas, these forested areas less intensely. Um, so I think in the past, there was probably even more warabi than there is now in in Japan. Um, but anyhow, they grow very well in Nishiwagamachi and they were... Um, one of the main things that people ate as a green vegetable there. But beyond the fiddleheads, the rhizomes are also a really important food. And the rhizomes are kind of what I focus on in this chapter because you can extract a starch from them that is similar to corn starch. Um, And it's what is used to make warabi mochi, which is a... Um, a dessert or a snack. Um, they're these kind of like <laughs> it's hard to describe the texture. They're like these bouncy little balls, still kind of like jelly balls, um, <laughs> that don't have a, a ton of flavor, but they have a neat texture. And you can find them in the grocery store now, in the convenience store. Um, but they are not authentic. The ones that you will find um easily in the store are not authentic mochi. They're not made with um, bracken rhizome starch. They're made with other kinds of starch and labeled as warabimochi. So the real warabimochi, you will have to go to somewhere like Nishiwagimachi or Kyoto um, to a, a traditional Japanese pastry shop to find the real warabimochi because they only they have a shelf life of like 30 minutes and um, they yeah they're not suited to the mass <laughs> the mass market. And Mm. this is a food whose history goes back um, at least to the 15th century, possibly to the 10th century. So people have been enjoying this as a a luxury food in Kyoto for a very long time. Um, And a number of the sweet shops in Nishiwaga are trying to uh, make a name for themselves as producers of warabi mochi made with um, locally produced um, warabi starch. So that's kind of the luxury side of how um, Bracken rhizome starch is used. Now on the flip side of that, um, this starch has also been a really important um, food for getting through famines, and also not even just for famines, but it was a food that poor farmers who weren't able to grow enough um, grains to survive on would eat um, to, just to get through the, the year um so Nishiwaga suffered from horrible famines um not just the major famines the tenmei and temple famines which were very bad there but also kind of just smaller local famines on a an almost routine basis because farming in that area was so difficult before crop crops were developed and improved more um and there's a when I was researching this this um, chapter, I stumbled upon this this document called the Uchi Nendaiki, which is a yearly record of agricultural harvests that goes back to 1673. Um, really by chance, I I had already done my reporting there or chosen to do my reporting there, um, you know, on the contemporary uses of of this plant when I discovered this this um, very old record which gives just a, a very clear view of how frequently famines occurred um how how hard it was to to survive there as a farmer and the sawa daiki mentions famine foods that people relied on including um where starch um so this was not just eaten in famines it was harvested in the fall, the The rhizomes were dug up in the fall and kind of um, mashed up and crushed up, uh, mixed with water to separate out the starch. And then the starch was settled, allowed to settle, and it would kind of settle into different layers. Um, uh, one of the layers was like a very pure white starch called shiropana, shiropana sorry, um, which <laughs> was actually used to make glue, a very high quality glue. Um, in Kyoto and, and other cities, it was sold out of the village as a as a source of income and the then there was another layer that settled out when the starch was uh, being made called Kuropana, which had like a lot of um, you know kind of contaminating material in it like the, like dirt and fibers and, and little bits of, of other things <laughs> that made it less desirable so the farmers would keep that at home to turn into um, a kind of porridge, they would mix it with acorns or immature rice or other things they had around and, and and use that to survive, essentially. Um, So I mean, as you can see, this essentially the same food had two very different uses and very different meanings. Um, And I, I guess what I was thinking about as I was researching it and as I was out there in Nishiwagamachi was that, um, you know, it's not just that you're living in the mountains and eating wild foods. No, you're living in the mountains and you're failing to survive as a farmer and therefore you have no choice but to rely on wild foods. Or you're living in the city and you're eating wild foods because you can afford the luxury of eating them uh, as kind of seasonal treats that add interest to your diet, um, so you can you can see how kind of <laughs> um, heavily these foods became laden down with with value judgments over over time.
1: Yeah, and and once again, that's a, a really nice uh, transition to your next chapter, which takes us to Kyoto uh, to talk about uh, not Shiropana, but to talk about uh, bamboo. Um, so unlike these previous chapters, which have us out in the you know, calderas and forests and mountain villages, uh, chapter four, The Tallest Grass in the World, Tales of Bamboo, Wild and Tame, um, takes us to Kyoto uh first we learn that you are an unrepentant a uh, repentant excuse me uh, and reformed bamboo thief if you would like to fess nice. up and talk about that or we could just leave that to you know uh, to for people to read in the book
0: nice. um
1: but, but uh you specifically talk a, a great deal about your experience uh first at a restaurant called uoka uh and the proprietor komatsu yoshinobu um and i'd love if you could uh, tell us a little bit about uh, bamboo shoots Uh, about the restaurant and then uh, also share the menu because it's quite sort of fascinating uh, to think about the, this, this, well, I I guess, I guess I'll let you explain this, but this, you know, the, the, the uh, idea that you could take, you know, a single food uh, and turn that into the, you know, the sort of the theme uh, for an entire meal.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I love bamboo shoots, um, this was something I came to love when I was living in Japan. I definitely did not love canned bamboo shoots when I lived in America, but um, fresh takenoko in the spring are, are a really delicately flavored, um, wonderful food that I'm sure anyone living in Japan has, has had an opportunity to enjoy. And Japan has a lot of um, native species of bamboo, uh, seven or eight um, types are are eaten um and a few of those grow only in the wild. But the most common type of uh, bamboo shoot that is eaten is mosodake or moso chiku, um, which was actually um brought to Japan from China in the 18th century as an agricultural product and it's it's grown, cultivated in groves. So in one sense, you know, it's a, it's a little bit out of place in this book. Um, but on the other hand, it's, I would, I would call it a, um, a feral food in many cases now, because a lot of these, um, these bamboo groves have been abandoned for, for various reasons that we can talk about if you want, but, um, anyhow, that, so you can, you can kind of go out and, and pick them like you would pick Uh, other kinds of sansai or you can go to kyoto and buy them um, from these farmers who devote an incredible amount of um love and time to growing them as tend to be as tender and delicious as humanly possible um kyotakenoko are are a very special subcategory of, of takenoko and and one of the places they're grown is the rakusai neighborhood um which is on the let's see southwest side of Kyoto, um, so very far away from Gion and other tourist areas, and and this is where the Uoka restaurant is located, um, in this in the midst of these uh, bamboo these bamboo groves, um, and Uoka is a, a fi- 150 year old restaurant that specializes in bamboo cuisine, and Komatsu San. Is the fifth generation in his family to run the restaurant, and I think it was his grandfather who shifted the focus to Takenoko cuisine. And after a, a certain journey in his life of, of you know growing away from bamboo and then coming back to it, um, Komatsu-san is now just he just adores bamboo. He's obsessed with it. He's one of these people um, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation who is just like hundred and fifty percent um zoned into the plant world and <laughs> our relationship with a specific plant, in this case, bamboo. He wants to help um, kind of revive these um, abandoned groves and share the wonders of Takenoko with the world, essentially. So he welcomed me into his restaurant, um, not only for a meal, but behind the scenes, I got to spend um, a day with his chefs and with him going around the neighborhood, purchasing uh, bamboo shoots from various farmers. Visiting a, a farm, talking to a farmer, um, and seeing how he grew them, um, and that was that was just a, a great experience. Um, one of the one of the sad things in this story to me is that one of the reasons the groves are becoming neglected is because um, people are replacing things that used to be made out of bamboo with plastic. Obviously not the edible shoots, but you know, in Japanese culture, if people just used to make everything from bamboo. It's um, you know all kinds of tools and um, buildings and and everything. And now, um, sadly, a lot of that is replaced with um, man-made materials that will be with us on our planet for <laughs> for the next several hundred thousand years. So, anyhow. Um, you know, these are were some of the issues that we talked about when, when I visited him uh, at his restaurant. So then I went after visiting the kitchen, I went back with a couple of friends to have a meal um, at Wilka. At and this starts by you show up um, at the restaurant. It's, it, the building is kind of surrounded by a, an earthen persimmon colored earthen wall. And you go into the, you go in, in through the gate and into this, this little um, garden and you walk through the garden and a, a woman comes out in a kimono to welcome you and, and bring you to your private dining room, which is of course like the size of half of my house. Um, and <laughs> it has its own little private garden as well with bamboo planted in it. Uh, and all the all the um, decorations are also bamboo themed. It, it was a little bit kitschy, um, but I, but I liked it. Um, I think the you know kind of just like a sign of the the level of obsession with bamboo that was going on at this restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, so our meal um, started with um, something that did not have bamboo in it. It was the only course without bamboo, which was so just some tea and a little um, azuki bean jelly. Um, appetizer so then we moved on to a kind of cold salad made from the silky leaves at the very tip of the bamboo shoot um, which are, are really delicate and and a nice nice texture and that was served with various other things like salmon roe and, and a few little beans and this and that um, and then the next course was a uh, dengaku so take no ko slices of take no ko on skewers um so grilled on skewers with miso on top um and then we moved on to a clear broth with bamboo and wakame and kinome um which is a kind of wakame and kinome are both classic pairing classic foods to pair with with bamboo um kinome has a a very distinctive smell um so the you know you'll often have like a, a leaf floating on the top of your little bowl of clear bowl of broth with bamboo in it um, and then after that we had Takenoko sashimi which actually was not raw um, bamboo shoots you can't really you can't really eat them raw although I've heard that you can that in certain parts of Japan like just literally minutes after harvesting people will will eat them raw but um, in most cases, they have to be cooked because they very quickly begin to become acrid after you um, harvest them. So you have to boil them. Uh, usually they're boiled with um, komenuka rice bran and, um, and you know, some chili peppers, things like that, to to make them taste a little more uh, pleasant. So anyhow, takenoko sashimi was basically like just this boiled takenoko with, um, with wasabi and, and soy sauce. And that was, in fact, one of my favorite courses in the whole meal because it was so simple and it was just um, so well done. It, it, the whole thing depended on, you know, the quality of, of the takinoko and, and their preparation. Um, but then after that, we had something called kagamini, which was a signature dish of this restaurant of um, sliced takinoko simmered in a warm broth. And after that, we had cubes of takinoko in a creamy kinome sauce. And then after that, we had grilled so I kind of like sliced in half. It's called katachiyaki um, because you can see the shape of the bamboo shoot and topped with like a, a kind of teriyaki sauce. And then after that, we had some takenoko tempura in sesame uh, batter with sesame seeds in it, which was very delicious. And some little sandwiches made out of. Um, Sliced takenoko in place of the bread and shrimp paste in the middle. And after that we had takenoko gohan, so rice cooked with pieces of bamboo shoot in it, and miso soup and takenoko pickles. And then we finished off the meal with uh some takenoko mousse. So as you can imagine, at the end of this meal, we were just like way past our limit of, of takinoko.
1: And just- uh, yeah, I was wondering whether you were going to to cop to that because it seemed <laughs> like as much as as much of a sort of enjoyable experience as it must have been, might have been a bit much.
0: I think like around the fifth course, I was like, okay, I'm happy now. Like that was enough, and then it went on for six more courses. So <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and, and just to prove that you hadn't gotten enough uh, in the next section of the chapter, you're, you you leave Kyoto and you're still on uh, uh, bamboo shoots. This time it's it's not uh, the the cultivated uh, Mosodake, but uh, wild bamboo shoots. and you're out foraging uh, in the mountains of Akita Prefecture, getting back uh, up into the the mountains of northern Japan. Um, and, and, you know, clearly you had way too much fun, uh, in doing this, uh, cause you're up there with a bear hunter and a train conductor. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, foraging for bamboo shoots with bear, bear train hunters and train conductors, uh, out in the mountains.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this was actually a year later. So I did have a break in between my, bam- my, uh, bamboo shoots, um, and, yeah, this was just, just a great experience. Um, I actually was, was out there in, um, Akita prefecture in a little village called Nemorida near, um, Mount Moriyoshi. Um, I was staying at a guest house to test, um, sansai recipes for the book. Um, because, uh, you know, I include a bunch of recipes at the end and I needed to be there in Japan at the right season in a place that had as many sansai as possible. So I chose Akita Prefecture because it's probably the most famous place in Japan for for sansai. So
1: so it wasn't just that you needed a full year to reset from your meal at Uoka?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, that was part of it. But I also needed to test the recipes and um, the guest house happened to be run by uh, Matagi. So which is the traditional hunter uh, is the word for traditional hunters from Northern Japan. And they often hunt bears. Um, and this man, um, Oriyama-san, it was a really interesting guy. Um, he grew up in the city and he really had no interest in, in country living. Um, his grandparents were from Namuraida um so he would go there on in the summers and stuff but he he didn't like it and he just wanted to get back to his video games and and then he was living in Tokyo um in 2011 when the tsunamis uh tsunami happened and the nuclear disaster and he had a kind of awakening and and he as as many people i think in Japan did at that moment and they realized you know just how um vulnerable you can be in a big city like that where all of your food comes in from outside, um, everything and your water, and and you have um, no no ability to you know go out and and kind of fend for yourself as you might or as people imagine they might be able to do in a in a small village in the in the countryside. So he took his wife and his his baby daughter and moved them out to Namoriya, this village in the mountains of Akita Prefecture, and. And um, turned the old family house into a, a guest house. And um, like a lot of villages in um, rural Japan, they were having problems with wild animals coming into the village because, um, you know, population is getting older, um, kind of taking care of the woodlands less, fewer people out and about, and bears would actually be coming into the village. They would come to the cemeteries and take the food that people left for their ancestors and things like that. Um, so uh, Oriyama-san decided, okay, I'm going to become a matagi. You know, somebody has to has to take on this role. Um, and he, you know, essentially took on this this new identity of a, a traditional hunter. He, you know, learned all their tra- he's learned all their traditions, and he he goes out into the woods with with other. Matagi hunters and they hunt bear, and um, you know, it, it's it's it was quite interesting. Um, although, <laughs> sadly, most of their hunting is done these days for um, quote unquote pest control. Uh, the prefecture asks them to kill all these nuisance bears as they see them, um, so uh, less of it being done actually according to the traditional. Um, traditional customs and more <laughs> more for that kind of purpose but anyhow as I was staying I was staying with Oriyama-san and he introduced me to his friend um, Sugibuchi-san who was a train conductor and on the weekends he goes out and he gathers um, chishimazasa, the uh, is a variety of wild bamboo shoot and he sells it and um, also eats a lot of it himself so the three of us went out at the crack of dawn which I guess is always when sugiuji san goes out to the mountain and got ourselves some hmm. some bamboo and brought it back and and ate it.
1: Yeah, and so um, one thing that uh, I, I was you know, particularly uh, fascinated by, um, you know, throughout the book, but I just wanted to bring bring it up here that relate because it relates to this um, is your attention. You know, we've talked about the the people. Um, and the food. Uh, but you know, another thing that the, the book really uh, um, highlights is the material culture of food. Uh, so you have all these you know, sketches that are scattered throughout uh, implements, tools, techniques, etc. cetera. Um, and I wanted to bring this up here because you conclude that you know, out of all the Takenokoyu sample, uh, quote, the best by far were those fresh shoots we grilled over the hearth for breakfast, um, impeccably fresh entirely uncomplicated, and above all, eaten slowly and sociably uh, with Oriyama-san and Tsukibuchi-san. Um, and, and so these are, um, you know, those bring together the themes of, of food and people uh, that are a big part of the book. But you also talk about um, how they were harvested in a bamboo basket, which is illustrated, um, and cooked over a, a traditional hearth, of nirori, which you describe. Uh, and this was, you know, for me, um, an example of the importance, not just of the social experience of eating, but the the importance of stuff.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, um, I'd like to give a shout out to Paul Pointer, my illustrator for this book, um, who did those lovely, um, sketches of, of the various tools, and, um, yeah, I wanted to highlight that, I guess, because it is such an integral part of how people relate to these plants, and I, I just thought it was really lovely how, um, Many of the tools that people use are also made from wild plants, from forest resources like uh, various types of wood and bamboo and vines. So they're part of the same whole um, connection to place and and to the plant world. Um, And they also shape how we experience food. For instance, as you mentioned with the Ibori, the hearth, um, you know that meal wouldn't have been it was what it was because of how we were doing it and where we were eating it you know over a charcoal grilling the grilling the um bamboo shoots over a charcoal um, fire you know sitting around the the irari. so um, all of that goes into how we experience the food
1: yeah so in in this chapter um you talked about you know the uh, the fact that uh originally you know Mosodake, the imported uh, chinese variety uh was and, and, and you know it still is cultivated um, and on the other hand you're up in the mountains you know with these uh wild varieties so you have the the originally cultivated sometimes still cultivated feral variety you have the wild variety and i think this complicates for me at least sort of the idea of what is a, a sansai right what that mm-hmm. that dichotomy between uh the, the 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 cultivated and the wild uh the you know the in, in civilizational terms right the raw and the cooked to sort of keep the food metaphors going right mm-hmm. um, and, and and I you know what was interesting to me was that in chapter five you complicate that even further um you, you sort of hit me you know, blindsided me <laughs> here uh because it's all about seaweed Right, which should have been you know, sort of obvious that that actually falls into the category of forage writ large. Um, I guess maybe it's the fact that Sansai, the first character is, Yama, you know, is mountain, uh, that I just really hadn't thought about it this way. Um, but yeah, so this, this chapter takes us, uh, it's called Seasons of the Sea, a vanishing tradition of wildcraft and seaweed. Um, and in it, you, you meet up with a, a local fisheries cooperative president, uh, Okamoto Akira, uh, in uh, a small town in Shikoku called Kitadomari. Uh, and this town's a big producer of farmed uh, wakame. Um, and you note that some families are earning enough uh, to live the whole year just on the very brief harvest season. Um, so so this was something I knew nothing about uh, and was really interested in. So what's been the impact of um, aquaculture on these coastal communities, uh, on the ecosystems, um, and on Japan's food culture more generally?
0: Yeah, um, well, as you mentioned, um, I think a, a lot of Japanese people as well were confused when I told them that I planned to include seaweed in my book. <laughs> um, because, right, sansai refers to mountain vegetables. And it definitely does not, that word definitely does not include seaweed. But the English term, wild edible plants does not technically include seaweed because seaweed is not a plant, it's an algae. Um, but our concept of foraged foods, it definitely includes seaweed. So I was working with that that um, more American um, framework, I think, um, to include it. And, um, yeah, so basically in um, kita do which sits, it kind of sits on the very um, northwestern tip of Shikoku, looking out towards Honshu. Um, it, this was a community, they had very little... Farmland, very little flat land. It was truly a, a community, and continues to be where life is shaped by the the sea and um, fishing, and and in the past, gathering wild wild seaweeds. Um, so, um, basically, Okamoto-san, um, he he was born i think around 1940 and and moved to that moved back to that village um at the end of world war II. and during the first half of his life up until he was about 35 i think he um fished you know wild of course wild fish and he gathered wild wakame and other types of of seaweed um quite a few different varieties um and um yeah, for him kind of as i talked about earlier with the with the horse chestnuts um diversity was really important to um making his giving him a stable livelihood and also um you know for food security for his community because um you know you can't count on um getting a big harvest of wild wakame all year round or, or even every year, you know, one one year, you might have a good harvest one year, you might only have a little bit. Um, so you had to, then you would have to harvest something else, you know, and there were plenty of things in the, in the, um, you know, natural ecosystem that you could turn to. So through kind of assembling all those different foods, you would end up with a, um, you know, a way of eating throughout the year. But the problem with that is, is that when you have, um, you know, modern markets on the national scale, they, there's a demand for a, a stable supply of specific foods um, in large quantities, you know, and, and people want their wakame in their miso soup every day. You know, they don't, they don't want to switch it up if, if there's mm-hmm. not enough. Uh, the ocean isn't providing enough that year. So um, in the 70s, Families in Ketodonbari switched over to aquaculture, to farming seaweed. Um, and they, they began to just focus more and more on this one species, um, which, which is really interesting to me. Because, of course, that also has um, an impact on the, the local coastal ecosystem, you know. So they're replacing a lot of, of that um, diversity in the ecosystem with, with wakame, with a farmed, a farmed crop. So you're trading um kind of security based on on that diverse ecosystem to a security based on um kind of controlling the the landscape or the the oceanscape um, and you know on the one hand, I think seaweed aquaculture can be extremely sustainable you know there there's very few inputs there's no pollution involved um and it can also prevent the overharvest of wild species, which is a problem. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you have the problem that I just talked about, where you're replacing a diverse wild ecosystem with a more simplified one. Um, and now in many parts of Japan, um, I think it aquaculture is a much more common way of, of obtaining seaweed than than foraging is. So this is kind of happening in other places aside from Kitadomari.
1: Yeah, and one of the um, places that you were able to find uh, wild seaweed consumption uh, was in Ishikawa prefecture on the Japan sea coast, the sort of famous Noto Peninsula area. Um, And you went there uh, with a seaweed scientist uh, named Ikemori Takahiko who uh, sort of shares you know, this concern about the, the ecosystem that, that you just described, um, and in, in particular, the decline of natural seaweed populations um, and the possible knock-on effects. Um, so Ikemori took you to a seafood restaurant um, run by a diver uh, named Bansho Satsuki and her daughter. Um, and so Satsuki initially, as you describe it, was kind of reticent to talk about you know, wild seaweed collecting. Um, but by the end of the the, the the lunch that you described there, she really uh, opened up. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, both what what she told you and also, uh, you know, if, if you have any speculation about what it was that made her uh, sort of hesitant to, to talk about it, uh, I'd really be curious to know that as well.
0: Sure. So, yeah, the Noto Peninsula um, has probably like the richest culture of, foraging and using wild seaweeds in, in Japan right now um, maybe after Mie prefecture is is my guess but uh, or Mie prefecture it comes next <laughs> as another place that, that continues to har- people continue to harvest a lot of wild seaweeds um, and i was told that on noto you know there's about 200 species of seaweed and local people eat about 30 of them and sell about 10 of them. So 30 kinds of seaweed, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, and the, the divers called AMA, um, they're free diving fisher people. Um, they don't use oxygen tanks or scuba equipment. Um, they Now they wear wetsuits um, and they will dive down up to about 60 feet. Sometimes they'll, they'll carry a rock with them to go down more quickly. Um, And they'll gather, you know, wakame, arame is another kind of of seaweed, abalone, sea cucumbers, sea urchins, um, things like that. Um, Ama used to be all over Japan. um, And a long time ago, they used to make salt out of seaweed as well, called moshio, which that practice has long ago faded into (laughs) into history. But um, anyhow... Uh, Ama came to the Noto Peninsula, it came to the city of Wajima um, in the 1500s, I think, from Kyushu, and they settled there. And um, there's this little island called Higurajima off of uh, the coast of Wajima, um, which is where Satsuki-san actually grew up. it's, so this is a, a rocky little island. I can't remember how far from the shore we were able to see it from her restaurant. But you can't grow anything there. Um, their entire livelihood was based on fishing and and diving, um, notably for abalone and turban shells, um, and then many other kinds of seaweed and fish. Um, so kind of a a unique, a very, I would say, a very unique childhood. Um, and now. Satsuki-san has a restaurant on the coast, not on the island, where she um, dives for her own seaweed that she serves, her husband fishes. Um, Her daughter also helps dive for things that they serve at the restaurant. So it's a a great little place. Um, Interestingly, as you mentioned, when I showed up there, of course she knew I was coming, you know, Um, Ike Mori-san had told her that I was coming, but when we got there, she's like nowhere to be found. She eventually like comes out of the restaurant at the restaurant kitchen. Um, you know, I asked her, well, you know, like what kinds of seaweed to eat? Do you eat? And she's like, well, you know, I don't even really care about seaweed. All I care about is, you know, abalone. And, um, gradually over the course of our conversation, you know, I learned that she, is incredibly knowledgeable about foraging for wild seaweed and eats all kinds of it, dives for all kinds of it. And, um, yeah, I don't know why she was reticent like that. You know, I think maybe she was a little bit shy, um, maybe just a little bit hesitant to open up to uh, an outsider right away about it. Um, You know, but over the course of half an hour or an hour, she, she definitely did
1: yeah i was kind of wondering whether it, it might actually relate back to uh some of the questions about um you know the the duality of forage right that, that on the one hand it's a great luxury and on the other hand it's a famine food um, in a lot of cases and and you know whether that that sort of feeling that like now that we have um you know a very well established aquaculture and as you said you know everybody wants their you know uh uh, you know, wakame and their miso soup in the morning, right? And so you have to farm that. And, you know, that like doing something other than that, I just wondered whether, you know, it, it had like a sort of stink of poverty to it or, you know, like is there that, that kind of feeling that it's uncultured in some way um, and whether you sense that that might be part of what was holding her back?
0: You know, I, I don't think so because I hmm. maybe that definitely existed in the past. There definitely was a shame attached to these foods in the past, um, because they signified, you know, an inability to succeed in the dominant paradigm of, of growing, uh, farming foods, and uh, especially rice, uh, which had such great spiritual and cultural and economic importance. Um, you know, so if you couldn't do that, you were forced to eat these other things, which in reality sometimes are. Much more delicious and much more healthy, but yet they um, get laden down with these negative connotations um, because of the agricultural context that they are set within. Um, but I think that that is pretty much past in Japan. I I don't know about you, but I never really encountered that, even among older people that I talked to. I think it has come so far now and and so much of the culture has begun to fade and there's general cultural general interest in reviving these foods and valuing them um and not letting them be lost that I think that that has pretty much been been wiped away the, the shame associated with them.
1: Yeah, I would say I mean that's very much my impression as well. The the reason I asked here specifically was because, you know, you you did note that uh, in, in her own lifetime, uh, Banshal-san had had, you know, her uh, family's uh, livelihood had actually depended on it, right? So it wasn't right. um, a, a matter of sort of luxury or tradition or pride or, um, you know, ecological uh consideration um but it's, just, it's sort of this interesting thing because I think as you- po- as this you know conversation we're having points out, I think we're probably in a bit of a transition period, right um you know swinging back and forth between these various poles of um how people see uh wild forage generally you know sunai specifically
0: yeah, um yeah, it's a really interesting question um so- w- when I started out writing this book like this wasn't even it wasn't even really on my radar um these other these other meanings that the food that these foods have had in the past because I was coming from despite my time in Japan I was coming from an American background and and these days in America you know it's like um wild edible plants are like trendy and you get them at a fancy restaurant and um you know maybe your relative in the countryside has picked them forever but but I think in general that, that um, you know, trendiness is, is dominant right now. Um, and I, it, was, it was interesting because I went to Jimbocho to go looking for any and all books about um, sansai that I could find it when I was starting out my research. And I remember going into a bookstore and, and asking the guy working there, you know, show me everything you have. And he started bringing out these books about famine foods. And I didn't buy any of them. And now I'm like (laughs) hitting myself in the head because at the time I just didn't understand. I was like, well, why is he showing me books about famine foods? Like that's not what I'm interested in. Um, Mm -hmm. but that association, it it, it is still there. And, um, yeah. So hmm, I I don't know what, so when you say coming back around, do you mean, yeah. Explain to me
1: Well, no, not so much coming back around, but sort of the, the, the pendulum I I think swings back and forth, right. You know, when, uh, when these things are, uh, when, and, and, and I, and I should say, as your book, you know, points out quite nicely, where uh, these things are uh, have a history uh, or a present as famine foods. um, There is a kind of, you know, stigmatization that, that tends to to hold on. Um, And on the other hand, uh, as your sort of adventures in Kyoto uh you know are a pretty good example of uh, they can also be these great luxury items you know even the the same uh warabi in nishiwaga is both um you know a, a famine food uh, and a source of warabi mochi which is this you know very um you know rare sort of gourmet treat in a sense you know, as you point out it seems good for you know 30 minutes or so right, right. Um, and I just and I think that you know the the there's a um the uh current you know, sort of economic situation uh in japan sort of obviously makes the um famine food aspect much much smaller but i just wondered uh, and so you know so then there's a, a that sort of prestige that goes with um tradition that goes with mm-hmm. a sort of return to uh you know thinking about uh, ecological considerations about you know uh, living uh close to the land etc um and, and at the same time i just wondered whether you know someone like uh banshuo satsuki-san you know for her it, it, that might be where society is at large mm-hmm. but for her personally that you know she has a history with um, edible seaweeds that doesn't necessarily you know quite match up with that pendulum swing uh, toward right. you know prestige food, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. no, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, and I think you know by no means were the the ama kind of like is struggling like the, the you know in some ways they did have a, a hard life, I'm sure, but the um, abalone. would sell for very good prices you know so the the turban shells and the abalone were yes i think what she was proud of at first and and proud to tell me about um and and the um the seaweeds were more of a subsistence a local subsistence food um less involved in the the economy as you yeah i think that's
1: that's maybe what i was keying off of yeah
0: yeah there were you know so people ate uh, eat thirty different varieties and only sell ten, so a lot of these yeah. don't even make it into the the money economy even now, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. but I th- I do think that um, as as we become afraid that we're losing them, you know, we we tend to value things more, and and uh, that that was really Ike More's, um, son's concern. I think is is not so much that the seaweed is going away in some cases yes he is studying how climate change is negatively and pollution are negatively impacting local seaweed populations but his much greater concern i think is that people um we are losing even on noto losing the custom and the tradition of um, harvesting all these these foods and um at the same time losing the relationship that that practice creates with the local the ocean ecosystem um that's a kind of a a very practical relationship and for that reason a very strong relationship um and there's a lot of knowledge a a great deal of knowledge tied up in it but also knowledge that is um tied to I, i would say responsibility and how how the resources are used and and um emotion towards those, those plants as well. So it's not a kind of encyclopedic academic knowledge at all. It's a, it's a very different kind of knowledge that that really can't be replaced by anything, but a strong culture of using those foods.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for, uh, uh, you know, engaging with this sort of question that I had since reading the, the book. It was just something that, um, struck me as, you know, uh, central to some of the, the kind of paradoxes, right, of, of these forage foods. Uh, so I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that. Um, the conclusion to your book uh, it takes us, uh, once again, sort of, you know, both directionally and thematically in a, in a very different direction um, up to Hokkaido. Uh, where you sampled uh, Ainu foods uh, and you describe a vegetarian version of Sansai Ohao, the uh, classic Ainu soup. Um, can you tell us about some of these foods about the, and about the wild ingredients that they incorporate?
0: Sure. Yeah. So Ainu cuisine has very different flavors from um, mainstream Japanese cuisine. Um, there, I would say there's a greater focus on the inherent flavor of each food. Which, you know, some people might hear and say, well, wait a second, I thought Japanese food was all about, you know, honoring the ingredients and (laughs) simplicity and all of that. But in reality, um, especially when it comes to sansai and wild foods, um, a lot is really done to these foods, starting with something we didn't talk about too much, which is akunuki, where you, um, you know, you might leach foods or soak them in water with ash or baking soda to make them a little bit less bitter or boil them again with salt and baking soda, something like that. Um, so a great deal of care is taken in, in making these foods palatable. Um, and, and I think that is something that sets um, the, the Japanese use of sansai aside from um, what's done in the United States. We, we tend to just you know, pick something and throw it in a pot Uh, a lot, a lot more. (laughs) Um, But the, the Ainu um, cuisine is really, it's very simple and it's focused on appreciating the foods for what they are. So um, Oha is, is um, a very important food. It's a soup that was traditionally made with um, maybe bear meat or deer meat or salmon And and wild vegetables, um, usually flavored with salt, that people would get from coastal communities, trade with coastal communities if they were inland, to get salt. And sometimes with fish oil, like sardine oil, I think, were the traditional flavorings. Um, And that would kind of be kept cooking over the hearth um, in the the home all day. And um, yeah, so that was one of the things um, I ate. In Nibutani, which is where I was, some of the more important sansai are um, Nirenso, which is flaccid anemone, um, and Gyochen Alpine lakes, are, are a really important food. They have a great um, fragrance if you like garlic. If you don't like garlic, they have a horrible fragrance. Um, and another important food is Oubayuri, which is, um, let's see, I think it's Japanese cardiocrinum, is what it's called in English. Um, it's one of those. Foods I'd never heard of and never heard the English name of before doing this book.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of those when you get into sansai, aren't there?
0: Yes. (laughs) Um, But anyhow, they would use the Ainu, use the um, bulbs of this plant uh, to extract a starch that they will use to make dumplings with. Um, So when I visited um, some. A couple of women, I knew women who are involved in documenting traditional plant knowledge and recipes, um, made lunch for me, a, a wonderful meal with the soup, the oha soup. And then we had um, something called koseyo, which is a, is a porridge. It was a millet porridge flavored with quijada seeds. The so quijada is um, amur cork tree. They have a, a really strong, the seeds have a really strong flavor. Um, and then terrupshito which is um, these dumplings made from the Oubayuri um bulbs
1: yeah thank you very much and so on that note I, we've uh, you've been extremely generous with your time uh, and you know talking to us today and it's been very enjoyable uh, we had a you know bunch of good laughs uh, and uh, and I, I definitely uh, learned a lot not just from the book but from talking to you uh, and I hope that uh, when you know, you have, uh, more adventures to share and, uh, uh, more, more books to, to share with us that you'll consider coming back on the podcast.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Nathan. It was great to talk with you and, um, kind of to get some of your perspective and thought provoking questions on, um, on a lot of these issues. So thank you. <laughs>